You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, February 2nd, 2024 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, the nurse practitioner will see you now from Fox. And wearing hearing aids may help you live longer from time. Plus, savor the quiet thrill of a happy secret from the New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. The nurse practitioner will see you now. You're likelier than ever to get care from a physician assistant or nurse practitioner. Here's what you need to know. By Karen Landman, MD, from Vox. In 2021, Nicole Barbosa, a media relations specialist in Austin, Texas, moved back to the U.S. after more than a decade abroad. Getting medical care established stateside was a priority for her, but when she tried to make an appointment with a primary care doctor at a local health care system she trusted, she was surprised to find herself at the end of a months-long wait list. Meanwhile, a physician assistant in the same practice was available within days. At first, Barbosa wasn't sure how physician assistants were different from doctors. Still, she booked the appointment, and when she saw the provider the following week, she was delighted by the unhurried pace. She answered all my questions without me feeling like she was rushed or needed to quickly move on to her next appointment or task, she says. The care was so good that when her provider left the practice, Barbosa signed up to see another physician assistant. During visits, I always just feel valued and seen, she says. Americans seeking health care are increasingly likely to get it from people who aren't doctors. The reasons are partly related to supply and demand. A nationwide physician shortage has been mounting for decades. And while the pipeline for producing more doctors hasn't widened, something that would literally require an act of Congress, schools that train nurse practitioners, or NPs, and physician assistants, or PAs, have proliferated. As a result, nurse practitioner numbers have tripled since 2010, and there are nearly twice as many physician assistants now as then. In primary care clinics, emergency departments, operating rooms, and medical specialty offices, these medical professionals are now doing a lot of the same tasks doctors do. These changes may be imperceptible to many people, but if you've noticed them and you're wondering how to think about it, you're not alone. Maybe you, like Barbosa, are trying to choose a primary care provider and want to know more about the professions. Or maybe your health system has assigned you to see a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, and you're wondering what that means. Whatever your situation, it's worth understanding the strengths each profession brings to the work of patient care and what makes for a good fit between providers and people. Just keep in mind that within each role, there's a lot of variation in practice style based on personality differences and variability between practices. Questions for yourself. What do I want from a visit with my provider? The differences in the training that doctors, NPs, and PAs get before entering practice has a lot to do with how they approach patient care, and those differences can have a big impact on what happens during your visits. 
Doctors and physician assistants are trained in the medical model, explains Joanne Spetz, a health economist at the University of California, San Francisco, who studies the nursing workforce. A lot of medicine is around understanding body systems, understanding diseases, basically understanding how body systems get screwed up, she says. People trained in these models focus largely on how to diagnose and treat illness and injury, and also, to some degree, on how to prevent illness. The nursing model is more holistic, says Spetz. The nursing paradigm, which guides nurse practitioners' training, considers not only the physical needs and ailments of the patient, but also other factors like the patient's personal goals and situation. For example, she says, if a patient has pain, a nurse would seek to identify the physical causes, but also understand how the pain is impacting the patient's social and emotional function, whether they can eat, whether the pain makes them withdraw from family, whether other stressors make it difficult to manage the pain. Another important distinction is in the cost to employ members of each profession. While physician assistants and nurse practitioners earn around $125,000 annually, physicians earn about $230,000. Because doctors' time costs their employers more than other providers' time, many healthcare systems allot less of it to the patients they see. Together, these factors mean that NPs and PAs may be scheduled for longer visits than doctors are with the patients they see in primary care settings, which means more time to answer questions and provide patient education. It's not clear if these visits are actually longer, says Tamara Ritzema, a physician assistant and professor at George Washington University's PA program. Due to a quirk in documenting PA and NP visits within the U.S. healthcare system, it's hard to gather data on differences in visit length between provider types. It's possible patients just feel some visits are longer because of variations in providers' styles. We hear this all the time from people. My PA or my NP spends more time with me, says Ritzema. We do not know if that is true or if they are leveraging better communication strategies, such as sitting down while they talk to the patient or using more patient-friendly language, she says. Because they're trained in the nursing model, NPs in particular are primed to do patient-centered coaching. This includes helping patients near the end of life prioritize quality of life as they see it, says Spetz, to elicit what your personal bucket list is before we start recommending all of these treatments. Nurse practitioners' holistic approach is a specific asset in addiction medicine, according to some of Spetz's research. Other studies have shown patients are more likely to get health education and counseling services, including advice on quitting smoking, from NPs and PAs than physicians. How medically complicated am I? The road to becoming a doctor is substantially longer than the paths to other medical professions. Before they can practice independently, doctors spend four years in medical school and three to seven years in an on-the-job training program called residency. Meanwhile, typical physician assistant and nurse practitioner training programs take two to three years to complete. All of these programs require undergraduate degrees for admission. NP programs require an undergraduate nursing degree. During medical school, doctors take a range of courses on the invisible mechanisms that keep the body working and that underpin disease in coursework that includes biochemistry, pharmacology, 
genetics, microbiology, and other hard sciences. Once they start taking care of patients, a lot of their education is aimed at connecting the dots between those complex mechanisms and the diseases they're seeing in clinics and on hospital wards. By the time the least experienced doctor enters the workforce, they've had at least 10,000 hours of clinical experience. Physician assistants take an abbreviated version of this educational path and, like medical school graduates, finish their programs prepared to work in any medical setting. Also, like medical school graduates, they need more on-the-job training before they're considered competent in their field, says Ritzema. But while that training is formalized for doctors as a residency program with clear requirements, it's less formally prescribed for PAs, she says. A PA fresh out of school has a minimum of 2,000 clinical experience hours under their belts. Because many PA programs require prior health care work as a prerequisite, many of these professionals hit the workforce with substantially more clinical experience. Nurse practitioner trainees also take a variety of didactic courses that overlap to some degree with PA's classes. However, they choose which population they want to work with while they're still in school, whether that's all comers or newborns, children, women, older adults, people with mental illness, and their clinical training prepares them to work with that population in particular. By the time they graduate from NP school, these professionals have completed at least 1,000 clinical experience hours, a figure that may be higher depending on what state they're in. These differences in training mean that if you have super complex medical conditions and all your drugs are interacting with each other, a doctor caring for you has an advantage over other providers, says Spetz. After all that practice caring for complicated patients, physicians are used to puzzling out how dysfunction at the microscopic level can cause disease and choosing diagnostic strategies to untangle a web of confusing symptoms or laboratory results. Not everyone's a medical mystery. Plenty of research studies have shown that for less complex patients, people without multiple chronic conditions who aren't taking tons of medications, the care NPs and PAs provide is just as safe and cost-effective as the care doctors provide. NPs and PAs who work as part of collaborative and supportive teams are most likely to have good outcomes, says Candace Chen, a pediatric doctor and researcher who studies primary care workforce issues at George Washington University. An environment that enables them and doctors to ask for and receive help when they need it is a key ingredient of quality care. There's currently a lot of behind-the-scenes tussling among professional societies and state medical boards over how much care NPs and PAs should be able to provide without a physician collaborator. But these professions are not interchangeable with doctors, says Candace Chen. Although NP and PA care is in many cases equivalent or even better than doctor's care, a recent study suggests NPs caring for more complex patients at Veterans Health Administration emergency departments had worse outcomes than doctors. On teams where providers can easily ask for help, patients who need providers with certain skills are more likely to get seen by those providers. The question becomes, how do you put those teams together so that everybody knows where their limits are and knows where to get help, says Candace Chen. More experienced professionals are also more likely to deliver high-quality care, even to complex patients, says Spetz. Research backs her up. 
In the VA study, performance differences between the two professions become smaller as provider experience increases, says Yukin Chen, a University of Illinois, Chicago, health economist who co-authored the report. Regardless of who's providing your care, it's not just education and experience that determine whether that care is good, says Retsima. The best NPs, PAs, and doctors all know when they're in over their heads and need to call for help. The people that make me feel secure are the ones that put my care above their ego, she says. That means being open to asking questions of the other members of their teams and to being asked questions by you. Questions to ask a provider to see if they're a good fit. What's your training and background? In general, Americans can be fairly confident that their provider has been trained to a high standard, says Ritsima. But because PAs and NPs on-the-job training is less formalized than that of physicians, it may be harder to determine the level of experience these providers have just by looking them up on a website. It's okay to ask your provider what their training and experience is, says Ritsima. To be honest, if your provider, whoever that is, doctor, PA, NP, is unwilling to answer that in an uncomplicated way, that might raise a red flag to me, she says. Where would you go if you needed help with my care? Good providers know what they don't know, are unafraid to ask for help when they need it, and have resources they can draw on in those situations, regardless of their degree, says Candace Chen. But as a patient, it can be hard to determine whether your provider and the practice setting they're in meet that description. If the practice has a website, you can look in advance to see what the mix of providers looks like, as their colleagues will probably be their first stop for support. You can also ask a new provider what happens if something serious comes up or if you need a referral. It's harder to determine whether a practice truly has a collegial and supportive environment where providers are encouraged to seek help. Here's where it's useful to talk to any people in your social network who work in healthcare, says Ritsima. Health professionals recognize those characteristics of humility in other health professionals, and they know who the cowboys are, that is, which ones to avoid, she says. Watching how providers interact when you're at the practice can also be incredibly informative, says Spetz. The medical assistants are like your canaries in the coal mine, she says. If the providers are brusque and condescending toward these and other support staff in the office, it can be a sign of a dysfunctional hierarchy, not the kind of functional team that encourages requesting support and insight from others. Are you the right person to answer this question? Medicine is not a field that any single healthcare provider can know everything about. Increasing specialization and rapid changes in technology means even the best providers will have substantial knowledge gaps about conditions they don't see on a regular basis. So while it's reasonable to expect a certain level of knowledge from your healthcare provider, expecting them to answer questions that aren't in their purview can set you up for disappointment and lead you to misjudge a good provider as incompetent. If you ask a primary care provider about the intricacies of a vascular surgery, the PA or NP in primary care, and frankly, the doc in primary care, is not going to have the answer to that, says Ritsima. It's okay if you don't know who to ask about what subject, and it's okay to ask who to ask. Just be aware that hearing, I don't know, from a provider doesn't always indicate a knowledge deficiency that would be fixed if you switched providers. Sometimes they're not the right person to ask that question in the first place. You can change providers. 
If your provider isn't able to get answers to your questions within their specialty or their repeated efforts to diagnose or treat a medical condition don't seem to be going anywhere, it's okay to ask for a second opinion from a different provider, either in the same practice or in a different one. One of the things we probably need to do is empower people to not let politeness be the enemy of advocating for themselves, says Candace Chen. Ritsima agrees. If you don't have confidence in your medical provider for whatever reason, she says, schedule an appointment with somebody else who you think will make you feel more confident. Up next, Hearing Aids May Help You Live Longer, by Haley Weiss from Time. Hearing loss has huge consequences, but you might not know that based on how infrequently it's treated. Roughly a third of adults who develop hearing loss report never seeing a physician about it, in part because of stigma and fear surrounding aging, disability, and hearing aids. Dr. Janet Choi, an otolaryngologist at Keck Medicine of USC, who herself wears a hearing aid, wanted to know how the devices might affect a person's long-term health. Previous research has shown that adults with untreated hearing loss have shorter lifespans than those without any hearing loss. But what about those who use hearing aids, she wondered. In her new study in the journal The Lancet Healthy Longevity, Choi and her co-authors found that the regular use of hearing aids is associated with a 24% reduction in mortality among adults with hearing loss. Choi analyzed federal data from more than 10,000 adults with hearing loss who were aged 20 or older. All of them were surveyed by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention between 1999 and 2012 about their hearing loss and hearing aid use. Mortality data on the group were also analyzed. Choi and her team were surprised by how strong the link was between hearing aid use and longevity, especially considering that her definition of regular hearing aid users included those who wore their device for as little as five hours per week. The results were significant even after adjusting for age and severity of hearing loss, socioeconomic status, and other medical conditions, she says. The finding was also surprising because researchers don't yet know exactly how or why hearing loss might shorten lifespan. But several factors likely contribute. Those who are born with hearing loss or who lose hearing before learning language don't experience the same negative health outcomes as those who lose hearing later in life, which suggests that health might suffer when the ability to communicate does, Choi says. Social isolation, depression, anxiety, and dementia have all been associated with hearing loss, Choi says. While each of these factors has also been tied to mortality, the specific way that they add to the burden of hearing loss isn't as well understood. A recent line of research has also tied hearing loss to structural changes, atrophy, and tissue loss in parts of the brain, particularly those related to auditory processing. In other words, people who had previously been able to hear well may suffer not only from the loss of their ability to communicate and engage with the world around them, but also from the loss of ambient noise more generally. The question we really don't know is when you actually use hearing aids, does that have a protective impact or does it actually restore any of these brain structures, Choi says. By better understanding the benefits of hearing aids, she hopes that more people will become open to wearing them. This includes both younger people like herself. Despite lifelong left ear hearing loss, Choi didn't begin wearing an aid until her 30s. 
and those who were part of an older population already at risk for social isolation, like the quarter of adults over 60 who experience what the World Health Organization classifies as disabling hearing loss. I really want to encourage any people experiencing hearing difficulties to seek care, Joy says. I've tried at least three different hearing aids, but when I found the one that really fit me and that I liked, I was surprised by the sound I was missing, she says. Up next, why we need to start taking hypnosis seriously from Skimwell. More than ever, people are losing faith in conventional medicine and looking for alternative options to solve their health problems, thanks to the prevalence of misinformation, discrimination, distrust in big pharma, and the lack of personalized care. One alternative that's often overlooked: hypnosis. Yes, it's taboo, but it shouldn't be. What exactly is hypnosis? It's simply a state of relaxed focus, and there's nothing woo-woo or weirdo about it," says Leora Cutner, Ph.D., a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. Hypnotherapy utilizes therapeutic suggestions to reframe the brain's perception and response to certain symptoms. For example, during hypnotherapy for pain, a therapist might tell you to envision turning down an imaginary pain knob. Leading medical organizations have recognized hypnotherapy as a legitimate treatment since 1958. The benefits and drawbacks. Hypnosis has struggled to catch on. In a 2012 survey, only 0.1 percent of respondents said they used it. But hypnotherapy is rare in that it's both drug-free and backed by research. It's been found to help control pain, alleviate digestive conditions, make childbirth more manageable. Treat anxiety, improve menopause symptoms, and combat insomnia. Drug-free doesn't equal risk-free, however. Experts don't recommend hypnosis for people with severe mental health conditions or substance abuse issues. It can also be manipulative in the wrong hands, so it's important to find the right practitioner and establish boundaries," says Elvira Lang, M.D., a former associate professor at Harvard Medical School and founder of Comfort Talk. Your move. If you're new to hypnosis, it's best to work with a pro. Though DIY hypnosis is a thing, sessions can cost seventy-five dollars to one hundred and twenty-five dollars on average, and generally include four stages. One induction. You might be told to focus on your breath or imagine a calming setting. Two deepener. You're guided to deepen the relaxation, maybe by counting down or imagining yourself sinking into bed. Three suggestions: the therapist will use specific words or techniques to help guide you toward your goals. Four emergence: the therapist brings you out of hypnosis, sometimes by counting up. Up next, can you trust fish oil supplements? From Consumer Reports on Health. Nearly 75 percent of the 2,819 fish oil supplement products in a recent study. All sold online or in U.S. stores had label claims that aren't backed up by medical evidence. The health claims that were touted include benefits for the eyes, brain, heart, mental health, and joints. And the source is JAMA Cardiology. Also from Consumer Reports on Health, the fresh way to ease fibromyalgia. 
Women with fibromyalgia, a chronic condition marked by symptoms like body-wide pain and tenderness, who got eight sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy, said the pain interfered less with their lives compared with a control group. Study participants had either CBT to identify and change their responses to pain or educational sessions about pain. Afterward, scans showed less connectivity between brain areas involved in pain for the CBT group. And the source of this one is arthritis and rheumatology. And finally, from Consumer Reports on Health, news about eye exams. A Swedish study showed that nearly 1 in 20 older adults were found to have glaucoma and that 56% didn't know it. Glaucoma, which can cause vision loss and blindness, may have no noticeable early symptoms. Ask your doctor how often to have a dilated eye exam to check for the condition and other vision problems. And the source is Acta Ophthalmologica. And guys, I'm sorry, I saw that I was running out of time, so I could not read the article, Savor the Quiet Thrill of a Happy Secret. It's a good one. So come back next week and I'll read it then. Thanks for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.